Hello, welcome to Texas True Crime. I'm your host, Jessica. I am so glad that you're here with me today. We are going to be wrapping up Anthony Allen Shore finally today after four parts, but there was so much information. I didn't want to just try to cram it all in. So remember last week, Anthony had, or Tony, as we've been calling him, because that's how he was known to friends and family. Tony had finally started confessing. He asked for Detective John Swaim to come in. And he started just putting it all out on the table for him. And he admitted to, which police did not know, they did not know to uh, connect him to this crime. But Anthony started out with Lori Lee Tremblay. So we are going to pick right up where we left off. I'm going to change it up a little bit. If you are liking the podcast, please subscribe, leave a five-star review, and tell a friend about the podcast because word of mouth helps it grow more than anything else. So let's get started and get Tony Shore convicted and put behind bars. Lori Lee Tremblay was born on September 17, 1971 in Lake Linden, Michigan. Lori's mother was young when she was born, and she had a lot of financial difficulties. Lori's father did not stick around, so she was a young single mom. So at first, Lori lived with her grandmother until she was 10 years old. Lori loved being outside and walking the trails around her grandmother's house. She didn't live in a big city, so Lori did get to spend a lot of time outside in the countryside in her at her home with her grandmother. Now, Catherine Tremblay, Lori's mother, worked three different jobs to get herself financially stable enough to have Lori come live with her. So when Lori was 10, she joined her mom in Houston, Texas. And Lori liked Houston okay, but she missed the open landscape of Michigan. But she did her best to get used to her new town. Lori was a good student, she made lots of friends, and she stayed out of trouble. But by the time she made it to junior high, things had started to change. Lori settled into a funk, and she started slacking off at school. She also started running around with a rough crowd. So, because she had gotten herself into tr some trouble at school, in the spring of 1986, Lori was taken out of Robert E. Lee High School and sent to an alternative education learning center called Hope Center for Youth. Now, Lori's mother was concerned about this change at first. She thought that this possibly might adversely affect Lori, and she might be even worse at the Hope Center than she was at her regular high school. But Lori started school at the Hope Center on September 2nd, 1986, and it turned out that she did really well. She was very popular and very well-liked, and she seemed very happy at her new school. Now, Lori was a very pretty girl. She was five feet, nine inches tall and weighed 133 pounds. She had long, thick, dirty blonde hair and blue eyes, and she took pride in her appearance. She was very striking. Everything was going pretty good for Lori, except for one thing. 
she had to take the Houston Metro bus to her new school. Even though the Hope Center was a part of Houston ISD and Houston ISD had recommended that she go to this alternative campus, the school bus did not come to pick Lori up from her apartment complex. So if Lori wanted to take the Houston ISD school bus, she would have to walk two miles one way to the bus stop every day. And she and her mother decided that it would be better if she took the Houston Metro bus instead. But this also posed some problems. Lori had to leave her house very early to make it to the bus stop so that she could make it to school on time. In fact, she left so early that it was still dark every morning when she left. And she still had to walk about a mile from her house to get to the Metro bus stop. And most of the businesses along her route were still closed at that time. So it was dark and it was pretty quiet and there weren't a lot of people around at that time. Not the safest route for a girl of 14, almost 15, to walk alone every morning. But remember, Catherine's single and she doesn't have a lot of other options for Lori. And after Lori's disappearance, and then of course, once they find her, Catherine Tremblay is furious. She already was not happy with Houston ISD for putting her daughter in the situation of just having to walk and jump through so many hoops to get to school. But then after she's murdered, she blames a lot of it on Houston ISD. And you know, I can't really blame her. At one point she considers suing the school district and she said not for money, but just because when she would call to talk to them about this problem, they kind of blew her off and said, well, other kids have to work, walk further than that. So they really weren't concerned that much about the safety of their students at the time. The night before Lori was murdered, she and her mom worked on a homework project together and they had a really good time with it. Before bed, Catherine made Lori a sack lunch for school the next day. She kissed Lori goodnight and they both headed off to bed. And Catherine Tremblay said that was one comfort to her is that they spent such a good night together. They didn't fight. They worked on something together and they had a lot of fun. The next morning, Catherine heard Lori get up to get ready for school, but she dozed back off. She woke up when she heard the door slam as Lori headed out to the bus stop. She got up and saw that Lori had picked up her purse and her lunch, but she walked out onto the porch just so that she would tell her, be able to tell her daughter, have a good day. But Lori was already gone and out of sight. On Friday, September 26, 1986, Homer Fernandez pulled into his regular parking spot in the back of Nympha's restaurant. It was 7.20 a.m., and Homer was the manager for the popular restaurant for his Aunt Nympha. Now, if you're not familiar with Nympha's restaurants, they used to be like the big deal restaurant for Mexican food in and around the Houston area. Like everybody had heard of Nympha's. It was very popular at the time. So Homer had a great job. And in fact, he loved his job. He liked working for the restaurant and helping his aunt out. As usual, no one else was there yet. 
Homer liked to arrive well before his employees so that he could work on paperwork quietly without being interrupted. It was also still somewhat dark that morning, and Homer was surprised when he saw another car pull right up behind the restaurant. This wasn't the norm, so Homer sat in his car and watched to see who it might be. He didn't recognize the car, and he knew it was not an employee. Now, the driver did not get out for a little bit. So Homer looked back down and rifled through his paperwork in his lap and looked over some things. But when he looked back up, he saw a man standing between the car and the dumpster behind the restaurant. The sun was starting to come up at this time and it caused a glare. So it made it hard for Homer to get a clear look at the man. But he looked back down at the ground near the man's feet and saw that there was a body laying there right in front of the man. It looked to Homer like the other man was staring directly at him, but he wasn't sure. The man had on dark sunglasses, and Homer Fernandez had very darkly tinted windows on his car, so it was possible that the man could not see him at all. But of course, this scared Homer. There's a body on the ground, and he has witnessed it. So he immediately looked back down again, hoping that if the man did see him look up, if he looked back down, he wouldn't come over after him. But the man did not approach Homer. Instead, he jumped back into his small light blue car and peeled out of the parking lot. Even though Homer couldn't see the man's face clearly, he was able to tell that he was white and that he had dark hair. Homer got out of his car and walked over to the body on the ground. It was a young teenage girl. He knelt down to check to see if she was alive, and she was not. So, he immediately went inside the restaurant and called 911. But, I should back up a little bit. He was so flustered that he originally called the information number. And as soon as the lady said, 411 information, what do you need? Homer apologized profusely and said, I'm so sorry. Hung up and then called 911. When the 911 dispatcher answered, he gave as many details as he could to her and then waited for officers to arrive. So, at between 7.15 and 7.30 a.m., officers Jim Ramsey, Larry Boyd, and Officer John Swain arrived on the scene. Paramedics arrived quickly after the officers and the medical examiner also got there. It was determined pretty quickly that the girl had been strangled and that she had not been dead for long. Officer John Swain looked at the girl. She was wearing three rings on her left hand and a thin gold watch. She was wearing earrings and a necklace with the letter L attached to it. The girl's jean pockets had not been pulled out. Her shirt was on, but her bra was unlatched in the back. Her purse had been placed in her arms. They found a Metro bus pass that identified her as 15-year-old Lori Lee Tremblay. Now, they, the medical examiner noticed pretty quickly that Lori had not been sexually assaulted in any way. And she was obviously not robbed. So this immediately threw everyone for a loop. Why in the world would someone snatch this young girl and strangle her and then just leave her behind a restaurant? They were already just horrified at what had happened to this young girl. Now, John Swain and another officer 
had the very sad job of going to let Catherine Tremblay know what had happened to Lori. She told them that she had left, that Lori had left the house at 630 that morning and then told them the route that she would have taken to get to the bus stop. Officers, um, officers immediately started retracing Lori's steps along her route to see if anyone had seen anything. They showed Lori's picture to people in the businesses along the way that she walked and near the bus stop. They talked with people in her apartment complex, but no one had seen her at all that morning. Next, and here's the thing, no one even knew Lori was missing. She left for school and then they just found her a little over an hour later. So this all happened very quickly. Next, they spoke with the bus driver and the regular riders on her bus, but they also did not know anything that could be helpful. It seemed like no one had seen Lori Tremblay at all that day. When officers started asking about Lori's friends and boyfriends, they found out that she didn't have a boyfriend, that she hadn't been in any fights at school, and in fact, that, like I had said earlier, she was very well liked and got along well with everyone. So there was nothing to point the police in a direction that they should go and start looking at to hopefully find out who had killed Lori. By October 1st, 1986, Officer Swaim had flyers plastered all over and around the area near the Nymphas restaurant where they had found Lori and all over her neighborhood and up and down the route that Lori took every morning to walk to her bus stop. They also partnered with Crime Stoppers and Lori's mother put up a reward hoping that that would bring in some more information. But things went nowhere. And pretty soon, unfortunately, her trail went cold. So even though Detective John Swain had worked her case off and on for 17 years, he really did not think that he would ever find out what had happened to Lori Tremblay. And then there he sat in the interrogation room with Tony Shore and tried his best not to look too shocked, too shocked. Because after all these years, there sat Tony Shore calmly admitting to killing her. Now, Detective John Swaim did not want anything to be left out. And he did, he wanted to make sure that all the I's were dotted and all the T's were crossed. So instead of taking notes, he got out a tape recorder. Well, first he very politely asked Tony to Please stop for a moment, got out a tape recorder, placed it in front of Tony Shore, and pressed record. He then asked him to continue. Detective Swaim said that it was surreal because Tony acted as if they were just having a regular conversation about the weather or some other any old thing you would do. Not that he was confessing to murdering four different girls. Tony Shore claimed that he and Lori had a relationship. He said that he would see her every morning on his way to work. And that she would ask him for a cigarette, which of course he obliged. And then it progressed to him giving her a ride to school. He would bring her kolaches and sometimes she would get there early enough so they would ride around and they would talk. There was a time when Lori decided that it wasn't right that she was spending time with such an older man. So she put a stop to everything. But one day it was raining and so Tony pulled up and asked if he could give her a ride. 
and she relented. I'm sure, she, poor thing, she didn't want to sit on a bench in the rain, so she let him give her a ride. Well, Tony decided that this was the day that their relationship should also become physical. Now, Lori was not interested in a relationship like that. She was not interested in making out with Tony Shore or anything else, and she told him no. But Tony wasn't taking no for an answer, and he didn't stop trying. Lori became very upset and started to fight him off. And Tony Shore said that he recognized it was messed up, but he had a sick compulsion and that he couldn't stop himself. But he also knew that if Lori told anyone, it would ruin his life. And he just wanted to make everything stop. So he took out a cotton cord and he strangled her. Now he also said that in the process, when he strangled her, he hurt his fingers. Poor guy. And so that's where he came up with the idea to use a stick of some sort to create a tourniquet. He said that he was shocked because as all this was going on, they were in the car on the side of the road and people were driving by and no one noticed a thing. Then he quickly drove to the Nymphus parking lot, pushed her out of the car and left her there. Once Tony Shore got started talking about his crimes, he talked for quite a while. And by the time he finished telling about Lori Lee Tremblay, it was a little after midnight. But he wasn't ready to stop talking, and the detectives were worried that if they asked him to wait until morning, he would clam up. So Detective Swaim got out a new tape, put it in the tape player, pressed record, and asked him about Carmen Estrada. Tony told Detective Swaim that he saw Carmen when he was on his way to work and that he thought she was beautiful. So he stopped and asked her if she would like a ride. But Carmen turned him down. Remember, when we were talking about Carmen, she was a cautious girl. She was shy. She did not like to put herself out there. And she was very family-oriented and wasn't about... And she had a boyfriend that she was very serious about. She was talking about getting married to him. She was not the kind of girl who was just going to jump in the car with some random stranger that asked her for a ride. But Tony saw her every morning as he was driving to work while she was waiting for her bus. And he wasn't ready to give up. So he asked her again on another day. And again, she said no, but told him that her name was Carmen and she didn't take rides from strangers. So Tony Shore was on a mission. He was going to make sure that Carmen Estrada knew who he was. And as he did talk to her, she realized he realized that her English was not strong and that she probably preferred to speak in her native language in Spanish. So he decided it was time for him to bone up on his Spanish so that he could talk to her even more. He told Detective Swaim that after a few months, she finally felt comfortable to accept a ride from him. But again, it was a morning when the weather wasn't that great and it was very cold. So she probably thought, this guy's asking me every morning. He's made it a point to speak to me in Spanish and make me feel more comfortable. 
And like everyone else said, he seemed so nice and so genuine. So unfortunately, Carmen accepted that ride. Now, Tony thought that this meant more. So again, he tried to put the moves on her and she said no. And again, Tony didn't like that answer. And so things went from bad to worse. Carmen fought him, told him no, and things went downhill. And again, Tony's life flashed before his eyes, how he had made such a bad mistake and he just wanted to make it all go away. So again, just like with Lori Lee Tremblay, he murdered Carmen Estrada and then left her behind the Dairy Queen. Of course, this time he did rape Carmen Estrada and then decide to kill her. So things had escalated from there. I don't think there are enough bad words to call Tony Shore. And everything he did was shocking and awful. But I read through his interviews. And then I also listened to the recordings also. He has no remorse, y'all. And even though he says that he has a sick compulsion and that he knew he was wrong and that he was sorry for what he did, it's really obvious that he's not because he discusses it like you'd say, hey, I went to a great restaurant last night. Let me tell you about it. It's terrifying that someone like that walks the streets or did walk the streets. Tony continued to talk throughout the night. Each time he told about someone new, Detective John Swain would get out a new tape, read Tony's rights again, and then Tony would tell another awful, horrendous story. The next thing he talked about was the 1993 rape of 14-year-old Selma Jansky. This was also another unsolved case that had gone cold. And of course, no one would have thought to tie it to Tony. Now remember, Tony worked for the phone company. He worked for Southwestern Bell. So... His area that he worked was Selma Jansky's neighborhood. And again, he saw a beautiful young lady and decided that he needed to talk to her. So he had watched Selma for quite some time. He learned her routine. He figured out that every afternoon she was dropped off after school. She would unlock the door and go into her house. And he knew that she was going to be home alone for a few hours until the rest of her family got home in the evenings. So one afternoon, before Selma got home, Tony broke into her house and he waited for her. When she got home, he approached her in her living room, told her to go into her bedroom. He tied her up with an electrical cord, and then he put duct tape all around her head to cover her eyes and her mouth. Now, he was wearing a bandana tied around his face, so she was not able to identify him. He told her that if she told anyone what he had done, he would come back and he would kill her and her family. But he told Detective Swaim that the main reason he didn't kill her is that he wanted to prove to himself that he wasn't that bad of a person and that he could walk away without taking a life. Even though he brutally assaulted this young girl, traumatized her for life, but he didn't kill her. Now, as soon as Tony left Selma Jansky's house, she did not wait. 
she managed to get herself up and call her mother and the police and let them know what had happened to her. But again, he didn't leave any clues to tie him to the attack, and so he got away again. Next, he told Detective Swaim about nine-year-old Diana Reboyar. And I'm going to read you a quote from the interview so you can hear what I was talking about when I said he's just so casual. It's unnerving to me that he can just gloss over the things that he did and somehow... Next, he told Detective Swaim about Dana Sanchez. He saw her standing at a payphone. So, of course, in typical Tony fashion, he pulled up and offered her a ride. He turned on the charm, asked her some questions about herself, but instead of telling her real name, she told him that her name was Ruby. But they also talked, and she told Tony Shore when her birthday was, and it turned out they had the same birthday. So, of course, that immediately put her at ease. But in true Tony fashion, he decided that just because they were talking and getting along and that he offered her a ride, she'd want to have sex with him. Well, she didn't. She just wanted a ride to go see her boyfriend, which she told him, no, stop. I have a boyfriend. I'm going to see him. Well, Tony didn't like that. So next he sexually assaulted her and then killed her and left her in the lot, in the underdeveloped lot that of course, when he didn't receive enough attention, he called in to the media. Oh, I'm sorry if y'all can hear my dog barking in the background. He wants in. Hopefully someone will let him in in a minute. Um, for four months after Tony confessed and was awaiting trial. He wrote Linda White a letter, like she wants to hear from him. He has turned her life upside down, but he has the gall to write this woman a letter, and he started the letter off in all caps. Linda, I love you. He then told her that they would soon be together again. Hmm. Now, he was completely delusional because Linda had severed all ties with him. Once he went to prison, she didn't talk to him. The police had come to her house, searched her house, turned everything upside down. She had heard about the horrible things that he had done. Why in the world Tony Shore would think that Linda White would want to hook back up with him is beyond me. But remember, he's quite full of himself. So. He told her that he was planning a jailbreak and that he wanted her to be ready. Pack a bag, get your things together, and be on alert. The police are going to be watching you because they're going to know that I'll come to you. But he told her not to worry because he would they would run away together and live happily ever after. He told her he was planning his escape as early as April but to burn this letter after reading so that no one would find it and spoil his plans. Well, Linda was not interested in Tony's plans and she didn't want to run away with him. She knew better than that. So as soon as she read the letter, she called Detective Bob King and told him everything that Tony had written to her. Shortly after that, Tony Shore's jail cell was searched, but nothing was found. And after that, he was kept under even closer watch than he'd already been on. 
Now, when the digital forensic lab got a hold of Linda White's personal computer, they found hundreds of pornographic websites that Tony Shore had looked at. Most of them catered towards child porn and underage girls. But there was a myriad of things, all kinds of stuff. Pretty much if it was out there for Tony to look at, he was interested. He had also done numerous searches on missing persons websites, looking up the names of Dana Sanchez, Diana Rebellar, um, Carmen Estrada, to see if anything had come up about him. There were also two more names that he looked up, Colette Williams and Gloria Gonzalez. But when he was questioned about those, he wouldn't give up any information and there was nothing to tie him to those cases. But, you know, even now, Tony's family, his ex-wives, his ex-girlfriends, and the police believe that there really probably were more victims they just didn't have proof of and he never confessed to. So on Monday, October 18th, 2004, Assistant District Attorney Kelly Sigler took the floor for opening arguments. She told the jury all about Carmen Estrada's background. She told them how she came to the United States to make a better life for herself and how she had worked very hard to do that. She told them about how much Carmen Estrada cared for her family and that she was engaged to a very nice young man. Now, Carmen's family and her fiancé, ex-fiancé, were sitting right there in that courtroom. Next, Kelly Siegler told the jury how intimate killing someone with a tourniquet is, that you have to be right up close and personal with that person. She also let them know that they have more than enough evidence to prove that Tony Shore killed Carmen Estrada. Now, she acknowledged the problems in the Houston Crime Lab, and then she started to tell them all about Orchid Cellmark Lab. Kelly Sigler then finished up her opening arguments by saying that the jury would hear Tony Shore's confession straight from his own mouth that Detective Swaim had recorded on tape. Now, Tony Shore's defense got up and basically said that he and Carmen knew each other, they had a relationship, and that Tony did not kidnap or torture her. He just killed her. And so that, therefore, he didn't deserve the charge of capital murder. That didn't fit. He just murdered her. Basically, his defense wasn't even going to try to deny that he had killed Carmen. They just were trying to, instead of him receiving the death penalty on the capital murder charge, just a life sentence. And that's pretty bad when your own defense team, they don't even, they're not even going to try to get you off. It's too bad. Too much. The trial lasted for four days. The state called 19 witnesses during the trial phase, including Carmen Estrada's father, boyfriend, and her best friend. Amy Lynch also spoke to the jury and Detectives John Swain and Detective Bob King. Catherine Long from Orchid Cellmark also testified and told all about the DNA results that they had found. She explained everything to the jury so that there would be no questions asked. Could this be someone else's DNA? 
found on Carmen Estrada. And she explained to them in just how minute detail that there was no way it was a mistake. The courtroom was silent. They hung on every word. Now, remember, Tony Shore likes to be in charge and he thinks he knows better than everyone else. And because he wanted to control everything, even from the courtroom, he did not allow the defense to call one single witness. On October 21st, 2004, Kelly Siegler then gave a moving closing argument. She spoke passionately and ended it by saying, can you imagine what she thought in those last minutes as she begged for her life? Can you imagine what it feels like to die and to leave this world looking into the eyes of that? She pointed at Tony Shore and practically spat the last words. And that right there is a capital murderer. It is time today to find him guilty. Again, the defense didn't do much. They just asked for a murder conviction instead of capital murder so that their client could escape the death penalty and sit behind bars for the rest of his life. Now, it didn't take the jury very long, only three hours, to convict Anthony Allen Shore of capital murder. The judge came in and said they would begin tomorrow morning at 930 for the sentencing phase. The next morning, October 22nd, 2004, at 9.30 a.m., Kelly Siegler made sure that the jury not only knew about Carmen Estrada, she made sure that the jury also knew all about Lori Lee Tremblay, Diana Raboyar, Dana Sanchez, Selma Jansky, and Tony's daughters, Tiffany and Amber. She wanted the jury to know just how despicable Anthony Allen Shore really was. She told them that they had convicted a pedophile an incestuous rapist, and a serial killer. She then began to call her witnesses. The first person who spoke was his one surviving victim, Selma Jansky, who was now 25. There wasn't a sound in the courtroom as Selma Jansky recounted her story about the day Anthony Allen Shore broke into her house, tied her up, taped her mouth and eyes, and then raped her. She also told them that for days after the assault, he continued to harass harass her by phone. In fact, at one point, Selma answered the phone and he breathed heavily into the phone and asked her, do you know who this is? Well, of course, she would never forget that voice. She said she screamed and dropped the telephone. After Selma Jansky testified, Detective Bob King said that if the district attorney wanted to stop right there that they would have convicted him and given him the death penalty right there after hearing Selma Jansky's harrowing tale. But Kelly Signaler was not done because she wanted to make sure that Tony Shore never saw the light of day. So she kept on. Next up was Amber Shore, Tony's oldest daughter. She told the jury all about the abuse and molestation of her father and that it began when she was in kindergarten. And that she was slowly rebuilding her life, that she was happy now and was in a much better place with supportive people in her life. She said she didn't consider Tony Shore her father. Yes, he was her biological father, but a father doesn't do the things to his child that Tony Shore did to her. And that she had new people in her life 
and new parental figures that she considered more like a mother and a father. Tiffany Shore then testified after her sister and also talked about the molestation and physical abuse. She told about how she had been in therapy for years and that she too was rebuilding her life. The whole time, Tony Shore never looked up from the table. He kept his eyes down the whole time all three women spoke. Last was Dr. Sharon Burns, a registered sex offender treatment provider and professional counselor. She was the doctor who evaluated him after he was convicted of molesting Amber and Tiffany. And she was in charge of the program that he attended for sex offenders. Now, she spoke to the jury about all of the testing that Tony Shore had to go through and how it was not only psychological testing, but it was also intelligence testing to make sure they knew the person they were dealing with. You know, did he understand what he did? Was he of average intelligence? And she said that not only was Tony Shore very smart, but he was probably one of the most intelligent people that she'd ever met. She also said that she didn't think that Tony Shore could be rehabilitated. She believed that even though he was going, that he really didn't believe one thing he said. He was smart enough to say the right things, but he didn't really believe them. She said he also, because he was so intelligent, liked to deflect from what he had done, so he would turn the tables on the other people in the group and let them tell their stories and question them so that that way he didn't have to talk. Now, on the day that Tony Shore was arrested, he left his treatment journal. Throughout treatment, he had to keep a journal. He had to respond to questions that were was asked of him and talk about the things he had done and why they might be wrong. In that journal, he left it there in class. Dr. Burns picked it up and in it, he had blatantly sketched pictures of nude girls. He actually had pornographic pictures tucked inside the pages. Tony Shore didn't care one bit about getting better. And in fact, Dr. Burns said that it was almost like he was throwing it back in the group's face. Look at me. I'm so superior to all of you and I know better. I can get away with all of this. I've even got the evidence right here in this journal waiting for you to see it. After everyone testified, it took the jury less than an hour to decide that Anthony Allen Shore deserved the death penalty. He tried to appeal, but the court denied his appeals. So on January 18th, 2018, Anthony Allen Shore was executed by lethal injection in Huntsville, Texas. Not one single person from Tony Shore's family came to his execution. In fact, they said they never wanted to see him again. That as far as they were concerned, it was better to just let him die. Can you believe that? They didn't want anything else to do with them. And they didn't even want to be present. They were done. But it tells you what a terrible, terrible person he was that not even his own mother wanted to go. 
His last words, he apologized to the victim's families for what he had done and said that he had made peace with himself. And then he told the warden that he was ready. After the injection was given, he said, ooh-wee, that burns. And then, 13 minutes later, Anthony Allen Shore died. I know there's lots of controversy about the death penalty, but if there was anyone who ever deserved to be put to death for the things that they did, I'm sorry, but it's Anthony Allen Shore. He's truly a horrible person. Thank you for listening today. If you have comments, questions, suggestions for another episode, please let me know. You can find me on Instagram at Texas True Crime Pod. You can find me on Facebook at Texas True Crime. You could also email me at Texas True Crime Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week. Bye.